Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. This week, I'm joined by Denise Gray. She's chair of the Direct Line Group. And actually, this is a, a company that has committed to play a key role in the levelling up goals and is really shaping a lot of our work on that. We'll end up not only with the goals, which break down levelling up, but with metrics. And then beyond that, the chance to really work out and demonstrate what actions drive closing those gaps and achieving those goals. And central to that are business leaders like Denita Gray, who we're going to hear from very shortly. She's got an incredible career that I really do want to, to dig into. Um, and perhaps, Denita, I, I can bring you in now. Obviously, you started as a non-exec at Direct Line, then became chair last year. Tell us a little bit about Direct Line as a as a direct line group as a company and its culture and if you like what you have really liked about being part of that that leadership team so direct line is a is a, some of people may know is is what we call a general insurance company so we provide insurance for people for their cars their home their contents when they travel and their pets um, and i joined uh, just over four years ago in part because I'm interested by what the business does, but probably just as if not more importantly, how it goes about business. Um, you know, the, the business of insurance for some is boring, but I think it's so important for us in those times of stress that we know it's there. It gives us peace of mind. And the team and the business of Direct Line is all about how we make that as seamless, as personal, as inclusive as we can. Um, but underlying that, the values and the quality of the team in direct line, and there's a real deep belief that business does well when it does the right thing, when it does the right thing for its people, for its customers, its suppliers, and for society as a whole. And, and that is what was one of the things that appealed to me that I have learned since being in direct line is actually how people work there. Um, you know, when I visited different sites from Penny, who's our CEO, all the way through the organization, there's a deep passion and belief in doing the right thing for customers and our people that is, you know, I, I see it in action every day. And that's, you know, partly what I enjoy about being on the board and now as chair, as well as all those interesting and intellectually stimulating things of how you compete well and do business and transform and implement complex technologies, but underpinned by that set of values and cultures and behaviours, I think is the combination of things that I find very interesting and enjoyable about working with the team. And I think for people like me who maybe are old enough to remember when Direct Line burst onto the insurance yeah, scene. me too. <laughs> it, it started, I mean, genuinely with a real bang. I mean, it, there was this relatively staid insurance market, wasn't there? And then all of a sudden, this new company arrived, which was Direct Line, <laughs> shook it up, uh, was way more down to earth, was, was far more zingy in a sense than the other companies were out there and I remember when I talked with Penny James the CEO just really got a sense of that continued energy almost yep. in the company to to keep on challenging itself and 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 that that continued connectedness almost to a wider public that it's providing insurance for 
That's true. And I, and I think that's why, you know, that element of longevity around direct line and what it's done is, is, is important because there's a, there's, as I said to you, the, at the core of it and what started direct line was a core understanding of what customers needed to see from a new version of insurance. And I think that's striving for continuing to make sure that we reinvent, uh, transform the business in order to continue that success is there from penny throughout. Um, I like the point you make about though, simple language, you know, making things understandable, being real and being grounded, I think remains the case in the business, even though I wasn't in it 20 odd years ago, I see that to this day and I think it comes through and you, you hear people talk like that, those particularly have been around quite some time. And obviously now Direct Line Group's working with us on the levelling up goals. We've all been through a pandemic, which we hope as we record this, we're, we're steadily maybe coming out of now. What's levelling up mean to a company like Direct Line Group? I mean, obviously a lot of those inequalities and gaps on access to opportunity have, have got wider because of the pandemic. But tell us a little bit about what it means to the business. So I think in a business, you, you've got various levels at which you can operate. Clearly at the very uh, policy level, you can have influence and thoughts around how to direct policy. But if I talk about the business itself and levelling up and what I saw during the pandemic, that doing well by doing the right thing came through loud and clear. Um, you know, the work that the team did to make sure that our people were looked after in having to move to work from home, whether that was physically in their homes with support with equipment or emotionally through leadership and communications. Um, a big part of what was done as well as looking after customers as best we could by making sure we were there for them. Uh, you know, we, we offered money back if they weren't driving as much, but also what I saw come through was a big peace around society and particularly the communities around where we operate uh, we have offices and um, business units all around the UK and our people were very uh, engaged and helped us in deciding how we could best support those communities and in that process I think what we observed was what we all probably knew was as you say the deep inequality in parts of this country versus other locations. And that made us think very hard about some of the things that we have been doing as a business, particularly on the dimension of social mobility. We do some phenomenal things on planet um, and other aspects of making sure we have a very inclusive culture. But I think it's really helped us dial up our thinking on how we as a business can make a difference to offer opportunity for people who don't have a natural opportunity that some of us may have had in our lives. So obviously for many businesses, by the sounds of it, including Direct Line, I think COVID has very much been a watershed moment because it's really seen companies look afresh almost at their role in a wider community. You mentioned about how the employees of Direct Line Group have very much shaped what was happening on the ground. Tell us a little bit about the, the things the employees were doing and the work that was happening through Direct Line in communities during the pandemic. Yes, I. do you know what I think also happened 
as humans, um, we also connected more closely with each other. So the leaders with each other um, and us with our employees to see beyond what we see each other in, in a work context, to understand you know, the families that we all live in and the communities that we all live in. And I think that brings um, a sense of reality about some of the things that we do that have these labels of programs. Um, and during the pandemic, what we found were employees who are very engaged in their local communities, calling out where the gaps were. So, for example, um, we have a community fund, you put an amount of money, three and a half million last year. But instead of us determining from the center what that should be deployed into, um, our people called out uh, where we needed to help. So it could go from providing PCs for children uh, who didn't mm -hmm. have access to digital technology to do schoolwork from home, um, down to supporting local food banks that as we all saw through the media, um, you know, were called on to an extent which was just so tragic to see in a country like the UK, the need for food banks to the extent that they were. Um, and through that, our employees were able to connect our, our fund, our community fund, and help over 200,000 people across the UK. But what was important was they knew where to direct that effort Mm -hmm. as it was in it was in situations and causes and cases that they were personally involved and engaged in and I love that um, ability for us to reconnect at that very local level again rather than just see things in really broad brush terms and that will be part of your social mobility work going forward won't it for direct line group amongst amongst other things that you'll be doing around extending opportunities Absolutely. I mean, you know, leveling up and is all about providing opportunities. Um, and I think opening up the imagination and helping give people confidence uh, that those opportunities are there for them and supporting them through that. So, for example, you know, outreach to schools where we will go in and share ideas about you know what careers could look like mentoring school children whether that's directly through our employees or supporting organizations such as teach first i think we've mm -hmm. thought about apprenticeships how do we open up apprenticeships to people from uh you know socially disadvantaged backgrounds and give work experience to children who are in socially disadvantaged areas to give them insight into what careers could look like um, I think the other thing that the pandemic and how we all had to operate working from home has shown everybody in business that despite the fact we've all talked about remote working and the use of technology for decades, probably in, in, in my view, we have really understood that remote working does work. And it means that you can be more open-minded about where we recruit people from. It doesn't have to be a physical specific location um, and so as a business we've done some work I think in conjunction with with you in identifying cold spots where we would traditionally not have recruited from but are now looking to recruit on the basis that we can find people and give them opportunities to work remotely and work for direct line.
places like Derby and Mansfield and Hastings and Crawley, which we would not have used as recruitment uh, locations in the past. So I think it's made us think much more deeply about what those interventions are that business can do generally uh, to open up opportunities for people who ordinarily wouldn't have them at all stages of their careers. And that's where I think it starts to get really exciting because I remember that probably one of the first times we met was at a dinner after I'd launched the social mobility pledge. I was, I was still an MP. Yep. Um, and obviously had just come out of cabinet to, to do the social mobility pledge work. But I think what was already becoming apparent to me and, and really came out through the discussion at that dinner, which was a lot of business leaders like yourself talking about your views and what you were already doing around social mobility. And I think it was one of those moments when I realised just how much goodwill there is out there in corporate Britain and beyond to really play a, a role in changing things. And I think what really had struck me, which is which is why I wanted to shift on to, to looking at this more and more, was that even if you close all of those education gaps, you still need businesses to be part of the solution on opening up more opportunity to more people. And clearly that's that's about leadership, isn't it? And it's about companies like Direct Line Group saying, well, this is what we're going to do. Some of it will work, some of it might not work, but actually we're on a journey and we're going to find out how to do this better and better and better. And the more we can go down that journey, the better we can become in terms of being a force for good. I completely agree. I remember that dinner as well. And, and you and I have very similar backgrounds, Justine, because I know you're from Rotherham and I'm from Sheffield. Um, and, you know, and we both went to the London Business School. We did. Out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I came from quite an ordinary background. My dad was a shopkeeper. Mum worked in the NHS. And, you know, part of the reason I think also that that business people are so engaged and care about this is, first of all, some of them have gone through quite an interesting personal journey where they've had opportunities that have allowed them to become uh, socially mobile for, for, for that, to use that phrase. Um, but also that if we don't tap into the full potential that is out there in our country, whether that is young people or actually older people needing mm. to retrain, yep. Totally. then that is just so wrong for business, for our economy and for our society. So, we, we, you know, we, we talk about diversity, diversity has many, many facets, one of which is diversity of experience and background. And I do believe that the best business is done where you have the most diverse set of experiences of all kinds that come together to create better outcomes, to make better decisions, and actually to design better products for consumers who are also shaped just like we are in a very different way. Um, and just to see potential that is not fulfilled and not even tapped into, I think is just wrong for, for our country as a whole, but for business particularly. Um, so there's a slightly selfish angle to it as well as doing the right thing. It's, it's one of those areas where it's a complete win-win. Why wouldn't oh, okay. you want to use all the talent that this country has and as we look beyond COVID, we've obviously got some very big bills that this company is, uh, country has had because of COVID. The only way you're really going to have a chance of meeting those costs is to literally shift up a gear. 
and to almost structurally become a stronger economy. And I think that comes through using more talent. Um, but Danuta, I also wanted to ask you about the interplay between business and government. And I think sometimes it's close, sometimes it's further apart. How do you see that? Because everybody has a role to play. We're talking about direct line groups role in this case, but actually you're part of that bigger ecosystem. So mm -hmm. how do you see the interplay with, with say a wider government agenda on leveling up? So I think that um, it's easy to be critical of policymakers. And, you know, well, why, why have they chosen to A, B or C? Why would they not do, you know, something else? And therefore, I think business has a responsibility, whether it's as individual businesses or as, as industry bodies, to actually share um, the reality of some of the interventions that we are, we are taking on social mobility to help, um, to help policymaking, to help policymaking around education. You know that the world of work and the world around us is changing so rapidly that we see every day because we have to compete not just in the UK but we see competition across business globally that we have great insight into what is going to be needed in the future that could help define education policy. Um, so I think there's, a, there's an importance there about bringing the reality of our experience and our understanding of these issues to join up with policymakers at the national level. But I think government for me is more than just Whitehall. I think there is a tremendous uh, infrastructure around local government. I think the mayors in a number of the regions and cities uh, around the country have some um, great insights into what their local communities require. And we as businesses are present in those local communities. We serve those communities we have people who work who have families who live in those communities and I think there's also a role for business to play at that level of government as well so I think there is a practical sense around um, uh, policy making and, and helping to move implementations along I think there's also an important thing about how we role model to each other how we influence each other as larger businesses how we relate to our supply chain um, a lot of job creation and wealth creation in this country is still in small and medium sized businesses. And I think that, you know, how business can join policymakers to to our supply chain to make things happen, I think, is also an important uh, role that business can play. And I think starting to increasingly see businesses for what they actually can be, which is effectively anchor institutions in the communities they're part of on, on which other things can you know can hang and 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 be be elevated by and I always felt as a secretary of state that the companies that were able to get the most cut through for you are the ones that weren't just talking about problems but genuinely were saying here's what we think solutions look like and we're coming at that with a really credible voice, which is again why I think the work that we're all engaged in matters so much, because I think it's it's genuinely working out that what works agenda and, and starting to really put some measurement and metrics around it as well. I totally agree. I think it's so easy for us to stereotype each other, isn't it, in different institutions? Um, but also to it's easy enough to define the problem. Uh, where the real effort has to come in is sitting down and working out what the solutions can be. And, and I think that those relationships between government at whatever level and business 
should be around what we need to improve, what we've seen work, how we know it works. So how can we measure what we're doing and the impact it's having to prove it does have a benefit and can show progress? And therefore, how can we dial that up and scale that up to become part of policy in future? Mm. There's, there's a big agenda out there if we can grab it. Now, I want to really turn to your career, actually, Danita. It, I mean, it, it's hugely impressive. Um, but tell us a little bit. Of course, we started a stone's throw in many respects away from one another in South Yorkshire. Tell us a little bit about that journey. And in a sense, what's driven you, your purpose? You're clearly hugely passionate as I am about social mobility. Tell us, tell us about that path. And, and so people can get a sense of, of, of what's what's happened in your life and how you end up being chair of Direct Line Group and then led of other, other companies too. Of course. Um, so what I would say is I didn't really have a plan. So people who talk about career plans, I think that's amazing. I have always gone through doors that have opened for me. So there's a little bit of chance as well as there is of, of, of structure in that. I mean, I, I was supposed to be a doctor um, and at my A-levels, I, uh, so I was, you know, born and brought up in Sheffield, dad a shopkeeper, mum health service. So I thought being a doctor, they would be incredibly proud and I wanted to do, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't do as well in my A-levels through partying. Um, <laughs> no, no other reason, it was just my fault. Instead of instead of resitting them, I just thought, no, I'm I'm that's it. It's meant to be, and I moved off to university to do um, a sort of form of applied physics, biophysics at the age of, of eighteen, oh. mm -hmm. um, thinking that maybe I would be an academic. I would be hopeless as an academic. I did stay on at post grad in the pharmaceutical industry, and I remember looking out of the window at the sales and marketing director coming into work, closely <laughs> followed by my then boss, who was the head of research. And noticing the difference in the suits that they wore and the cars that they drove. <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact that to me, at least, to me at least, and this doesn't apply to everyone, the sales and marketing directors seem to have a lot more fun than my <laughs> Realising that being a solitary laboratory uh, research uh, graduate was probably not for me. Um, and as a consequence, I, I, I left. And, and I, I can found... just imagine your, your brow furrowing slightly oh, was, yeah, and, kind of... and a thought lodging in yeah. there that you thought, like, no, oh, come this back is, to that this tonight. This is neither right nor fair, exactly. <laughs> so, I, long story short, I then joined BT and, and, and that was going through huge change at the time. And even back then in my career, I thought, well, if there's lots of change, you know, there must be some opportunity for me to progress. Because but at BT, you're, you're, you're then into sales marketing and that side so of the business. Actually, really. no, I, do you know, I started in technology because right, okay. physics at university, they naturally thought I knew about IT, which, of course, I didn't. But I, I clearly <laughs> read, read the next chapter on to do so. So my first few years were in IT and big systems integration programs in running engineering teams. So it's much more on the technology base. Um, but I felt quite strongly that to learn about a business, you needed to be close to the customer. So yeah, totally. um, throughout my career, I've had three or four brilliant sponsors of mine who gave me opportunities. Um, one allowed me to go on a sort of high potential scheme, and that enabled me to do a, a, a lateral transition into sales. So I ran a sales team. I was a salesperson on the road selling to a multinational I then managed a big team thanks to one of my sponsors who gave me a couple of rapid promotions fabulous guy um, and then in the mid 90s I spotted the next growth opportunity which was mobile communications which today mm -hmm. is prevalent but then was was not and growing like topsy 
Um, and uh, one of my great supporters in business moved into the mobile communications business. And he asked me if I would go and work for him. Uh, and a, an amazing opportunity. He's, I said, well, to do what? And he said, well, what would you like to do? And I went, well, I've never done marketing or customer services, right? Come on, over you come. And it was growing so quickly that I was able to do a marketing job and then a big customer service job. So I'd sort of done, you know, lots of technology jobs and then sales marketing and, and customer service. Thoroughly enjoyed that. It was an absolute and, and just people listening to this would probably wonder, so how do you do that? You, you're going into these brand new areas. Um, your boss is going like, well, I'm going to get you to do this customer services stuff. And you'll be fine because you're really good. But this, this kind of being given an opportunity and then succeeding in it, clearly you had to find ways to be able to hit the ground running. Tell us a little bit about how you made sure you could succeed in each of those opportunities that came your way. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think back on those things and, you, and I wonder whether I'd be as courageous now. But um, mm -hmm. to my point about seeing an open door and saying yes, there's a bit of impulsiveness in there. You go through the door and then you realise that you don't know anything about the world you've just entered. Um, and for me, so there's a bit of a sharp intake of breath and quite a degree of fear. <laughs> um, but then you work hard. And for me, that is about getting to grips quite quickly with what it is that organization, that team, whoever it is, what are they doing? What do they do day to day? How do they do it? Spend time to really, you know, and that takes energy and stamina and just hard work to get to understand it. Um, but in the end, a lot of things that we do in business have the same underlying challenges, whether they're efficiency or you know, truly understanding the insight around customers or understanding what the barriers are to working really well in a, in a call center environment. And you work to create uh, an environment in which people love to work, find the best people you can to work with you and create a team and go about tackling those issues. Um, and that's, that's also a piece of advice that brilliant sponsor gave me, um, which was always find people who are better at those jobs than you are as part of your team. And that will actually elevate you as a team. And your role as a leader is how you create that team in order to succeed, that I always tried, tried hard to emulate. Um, so that took, that's always stood me in good stead in, in jumping into different jobs and then into different sectors latterly in my career. And you end up running Telefonica, I think in Ireland and, and in a sense. So yeah, yeah. Get right to the top of, of effectively a massive organization that comes out of that whole sector growth that takes place. Yeah, it was brilliant. I went to Germany for three or four years as a family. We did some work over there. That gave me an opportunity to go into chief exec in Ireland and be part of the team that launched O2. Uh, and then then into Telefonica, which was an enormous company which bought us. Um, and at each stage, you get different experiences. And during that process, I had a couple of non-executive roles as well. So that opened up that uh, career stream, as it were, to me. Um, and for all sorts of personal reasons, moving from an exec to a non-exec at the stage that I did it about 10 years ago made absolute sense personally. And I really enjoyed also being part of a non-executive team, a board and helping support um, and mentor an executive team um, and 
join the dots of themes and patterns I'd seen across different different mm -hmm. roles, different stages in my career, and then different sectors to enable me to forge a career there. Um, so I've been on the board of an airline and a gambling company and a bank and a big insurance company that was in life insurance primarily, uh, and then on the board at the MOD. And that each stage of that gives you new experience, but it also enables you to pull on the reservoir of experience you've got from elsewhere in order to try and help executives succeed in what they're doing day to day, trying to help and them see around corners. It sounds, you know, a lot of what you say ultimately comes back to people and teams. Absolutely. Shaping those teams and supporting those teams and people so they can be the best version of the team that's possible. Yes, and you asked me about my own purpose. I've always struggled with that question, Justine, but as I was reflecting on it, I, I suspect there's an element of that in the purpose that I, mm -hmm. that I have, which is create an environment in which um, people want to work, you know, doing well by doing the right thing, and then finding talent, developing and supporting that talent to succeed is something that I very, very much enjoy. And for you, is, is in a sense, that comes from a place of being someone who's had some support and so understands how important that is? Or, or do you think there are other things, if you like, for you that make that really important? Um, I Partly that I've had support, but partly also that um, I've always... Um, so, for example, you know, I hate bullies in work. I, I hate seeing people not treated with respect and I hate to see potential that isn't fulfilled um, so there's a piece of me that goes way back I think that's that drives it as well mm -hmm. but I've been incredibly lucky in my career in having doors open for me that I've opened or that have been open and as I said three amazing guys that I worked for that just took risks on me that I still wonder to this day if I would taken mm. and by doing so threw me in at the deep end and I learned so much but it helped me progress mm. and I want to make sure we continue to offer that to people in the businesses that I'm involved in and more broadly because in that way you find things in people that you wouldn't have imagined from just judging them at first first glance I think that's absolutely true um, we haven't got so long left, but I've got a, two, three more questions. First mm. one is proudest career moment, Danuta, so far, I should say. Uh, well, obviously, being asked to be the chair of Direct Line was fantastic. Um, moment, no. There was a year when I was CEO where my team were acknowledged um, at quite a, a large scale level, European level, for being a great place to work, um, delivering great customer service for marketing and for what we did in the community. And I loved that because it was recognition for them, but it was quite a holistic recognition of what we tried mm -hmm. to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that was a very special year. Um, that was great. Okay, that's a very good answer. Love it. Um, advice that you'd give to someone else. I think, I think you've probably got some great stuff to say about that. So, Often young people will ask for advice and, and young women in particular, and there's sort of two elements. First of all, go where there's growth and change. There is always going to be more to do than there are people to do it. And you will probably be given opportunities to do things that you didn't imagine you could do. And so following that as a sort of theme, 
try to put the fear to one side and go for that growth and change so that you get an opportunity to try different things and, and test your own potential. And um, for young women, I very often say, find your voice, speak up, ask, mm -hmm. you know, just ask for something that worst thing that can happen is somebody can say no. But I do think sometimes women in particular don't speak up sufficiently. Um, so just just go for it. Practice it. It's a muscle that can be exercised. And the more you do it, the more the easier it gets. <laughs> it's it's great advice. Um, best piece of advice ever received. I think you, you've talked a little bit about this already. Hmm. I, do you know there's a there's the, the the guy I spoke about, and I should mention him, his name was Hugh Logan, and he was a fab, he is he's not he's still with us. Hugh Logan is a Glaswegian um, and or from that part of Scotland, and a very down to earth great guy he gave me a couple of opportunities and followed by him a couple of others Peter Erskine and a gentleman called Terry Idle they all reinforced for me that don't forget that at the end of the day we go home to family and friends who are the most important things in our lives and I was going off on maternity leave and getting very nervous about leaving the job and leaving the business for a number of weeks and, you know, a very ambitious, driven young woman. And I remember at the time, and it's been repeated since, don't forget what's most important in life. And my goodness, did we all learn that in the last year during COVID. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad I listened to them to a certain degree throughout my career to make sure that I, as well as work hard and try to progress, is make sure I carve out time to have family and friends that are still still so important and still with me. Mm. Um, and I and that was a great piece of advice, a source of resilience, but also a source of sanity, frankly, in certain periods <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I know, I know that feeling. Last question, then, maybe a bit flippant, but interesting. Favorite book or favorite movie, and why? Oh, uh, favourite book, um, keep going back to it, Birdsong by Sebastian Fawkes. Great choice. His language is, is like poetry and he has that amazing ability to take you into the place he's writing about. Incredible. Okay. Um, Denise Gray, Chair of Direct Line Group. It's been just fantastic having you on the podcast today and having our outland group part of the leveling up goals i'm looking forward to a dinner when we can get back around the table together again soon um, but in the meantime thanks for your leadership on all of this agenda um, and all of those nuggets that you've just given us about you know not just how to sort of make the most of your career and yourself but actually how to bring out the best in in the people that are around you it's been absolutely fantastic so thank you very much thank you justine it's lovely to talk to you again <laughs> <laughs>